Thank you for tuning in to Hacks and Hobbies with your host, Junaid. In season two of Hacks and Hobbies, we're visited by our amazing guests coming from all walks of life who want to learn their story, their struggles, and their journey on how they got to where they are today. So stick around. In this episode, we get to speak with David Burkis. He is a keynote speaker, a best-selling author of an amazing book called Friend of a Friend. He's an associate professor of leadership and innovation at ORU. I learned about David Burkis through my good friend, Grayson Scott, who is also a guest on this podcast. And I had the, had the honor of being on his podcast as well. And I was, I was been, I've been reading the book "Friend of a Friend" and following um, David's journey. And I decided, hey, why not bring him on the podcast since we're learning about journeys and stories, and he's got a really cool one. So, David, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh no, thank you for having me. I, I what I love is that it's sort of proof of concept, right? That we had a friend of a friend in Grayson, and that's how we got connected. And that's sort of you know proof of concept for the for the whole book, which is awesome. Exactly, it's it's the social proof that it's it works and it's real. Awesome. So, David, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got here, what are some of the things you went through, and um, what are your plans. Well, I mean, it's how long, how long do you have? No, I'm kidding. You know, my, so my story is sort of like a lot of people starts really long ago, takes some winding roads, but ends up right where we intended. So when, when I was a high school student, it, that's when I sort of got in my head that I wanted to be a writer. I fell into this world where like my brother was talented in music, my sister in, in theater, especially musical theater. And then I was like the writer of the family, which is, I don't know if it's the black sheep or the white sheep, honest, to be totally honest with you, but knew that going into it, went to university to study English and, and creative writing. And then in the process of that, really fell in love with the kind of, I don't even, I can't even call them the new breed of social science writers because they were like the original breed. But this was late 90s, early 2000s, beginning of Malcolm Gladwell doing a fantastic job blending storytelling and, you know, social science studies. The Heath brothers, Daniel Pink, et cetera, the, the early time of these people's writings coming out. And I was just fascinated with it. And, and to be honest, the, the enterprising young undergraduate also noticed that these people didn't starve like a lot of the professors that were teaching me how to be a writer, right? So um, I started thinking, okay, maybe, maybe there's something here, not only in a really sort of fun and also impactful way to express myself through writing, but, but also, you know, it seemed a, a little bit more profitable than trying to write novels. Yeah. Um, and so I went out, finished undergraduate, still with an English degree. I didn't have enough time to sort of switch to a whole other thing. But went to graduate school for organizational psychology and then promptly did nothing with that plan for a number of years. And when I say that, I'm sort of half kidding. My wife and I got married uh, the summer after we graduated undergraduate. She was starting medical school. We figured like, let's just, let's just jump into it, et cetera. So I was the breadwinner for a long time in the house trying to find work that did it. I fell into a, a gig in the pharmaceutical industry that, that paid really well, but required a decent amount of time. And so with whatever time I had left over, I was trying to build a platform, trying to write a little bit, trying to study a bit more, what have you. And really nothing 
nothing really came about of it until about 2010 when this is the irony of talking to you when I started a podcast myself. So now you, me and Grayson, we're all podcasters, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea was literally just like, I want to interview my idols. I want to interview the, the writers that I'm aspiring to be like, this at the time was early 2010. So like you, you, you had to use like Cyberduck and other FTP programs to upload the audio file in order to have a podcast. It wasn't like these days where you just set up an account with SoundCloud or Anchor or what have you. Um, so it was early, early in, which was a great, a great opportunity. And, and that's how we began to build a platform that turned into a number of different network connections. Unbeknownst to me, the podcast was actually a great way to sort of get into the network of business and specifically social, social science writers. And then that led to the first book came out in 2013. And this has been my sort of path and passion kind of ever since. But the weird thing about me is I went three books before I wrote a book on networking and only after writing that did I realize how much of it was about using that tool of creation, in particular the podcast, as a networking tool to get into that industry. Because I forget if we said this on air or before, the, the weird thing about sort of my life is that I, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is a city that makes the top 25 most populous cities in America possible. Right, it's not a very it's, it's not a very well known area, and yet we lived in a time where you could use something like a podcast to begin to build those same networks as if you lived in New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco, and that's been a huge blessing in my own career and really sort of accelerated that path. And so now here we are, we're full circle, we're on a podcast talking about networking, which is what started the whole thing. Isn't that amazing? Like the it's it's called a circle of networking, you know. Take a cue from Circle of Life from Lion King. Yes, except nobody's gonna like eat the carcass of another animal. Exactly. I hope. Yeah, that's the convenient part that we always overlook when we show the Lion King to our kids. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just. You know, it's funny uh, talking about Lion King. I'm a huge movie buff, and just just saw the trailer for the for the live action. Lion King that they're working on right now. I'm like, wow, it's 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 just so easy for to create something that's already been proven, and 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 you know the the power of network. You can, as you can say, right? It you can apply it to any medium, and it works. It just it just flows. Yeah, I mean. If, uh... I'm also I'm also waiting for someone to explain to me how that movie is actually live action. I mean, it looks beautiful, but it's 100% CGI. How does that count as live action, right? Um, they they went and filmed like the savanna yeah. for 90 minutes so yeah. that they could later animate everything else on top of it, right? right? But exactly. but no, I mean, I actually think you're right. I mean, networks. Um, sort of permeate and imbue every aspect of our lives. This is one of the most fascinating studies. And because it was fascinating, I put it to the very end, which doesn't make a lot of sense Mm -hmm. looking back, is the the research by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler that shows that even people you don't know who are friend of a friend of a friend, so three degrees of influence away from you, Mm -hmm. are still, they still have a statistically significant impact on your sense of norms, your behaviors, uh, on, on your life. Like we're all embedded inside of a network that is shaping how we see and interact with the world. And that was really the the goal of getting out in a book like Friend of a Friend Mm -hmm. was that that we think of networking just means collecting business cards or running up the contacts we have on on LinkedIn. But it's actually about understanding the network that we're already embedded in. And every industry has one, every city has one, every community has one. And it's your best bet is to start to become a student of what that network is. And then how can I provide value to that and trust that the rest of it will work out? 
Wow, that's that's very well said. I mean, um, I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, but obviously, you know what's up. And if you think about it, right, our brains are a network of neurons connected together, you know, throughout our entire body. There's networks. Like, it's interesting that the word network has so many connotations, so many connections with so many things that are human and that are technology. It's yeah. Tell me about it. We're doing, doing SEO for different articles on, on friend of a friend has been obnoxious because of the different ways that we use this word networking. Like you said, your, your neurons and your brain, your, the, the way the systems and your body work together, ecological, like food chain networks, yes. electrical grids, et cetera. And what's weird about it, and this is the basis of the different chapters in friend of a friend is that there are certain phenomenon that are universally true about networks, even when they're not human networks, right? The the way that they create structural holes, the way that they have resilience because um, they're so dense that that six degrees of separation phenomenon is true, et cetera. And to me, that's what's sort of fascinating is that it's not just about social networks, like a people. Yeah. All of the, all of these networks have principles that are universally true. Absolutely. And when you mentioned the six degrees of network, I'm just thinking because I'm a beekeeper myself and you look at the hive cells, they have hexa- they are hexagons because those six degrees is the strongest um, uh, shape that you can create and, and you can place, I mean, if, if they had created um, square shapes, it wouldn't work because they're wasting space. But these hexagonal shapes, they can put together and essentially if you look from far away they're actually circles upon circles hmm. so it's really interesting no that yeah no it's totally interesting and, and then i mean even the way that if you if you think about bees uh, and really sort of any in any any insect community that lives in that sort of hive or tribe there's there's a whole system of how they relay information to each other whereas it's really not you know wheat had this tendency to think about most animals the way that we think about humans which is almost hierarchically right like the, that the queen is giving all of the commands to it doesn't work that way they the information relays back and forth through these different networks and yeah there's a couple different roles but it's a much more decentralized community than we think it is and and in truth that i think is true of human communities we just have this tendency to want to do order out of chaos and so we create um these power hierarchies and that sort of stuff but it's a very uh relatively recent creation even in human history mm-hmm. and you're, you're absolutely right and uh, so we can talk about going back to the bees um you know the queen the the queen bee is actually labeled incorrectly she is not the queen she's actually the slave of the worker bees mm-hmm. her job is just to lay eggs like she cannot feed herself the worker bees have to feed her uh they they tell the queen when to lay the eggs when, and then they starve her so they don't, so she doesn't lay eggs. So they control, like the entire hive controls how the queen is going around laying eggs, which is not. It's really cool. Okay. That's awesome, man. I love, I mean, <laughs> what's really cool is bringing the, the, the topic of bees back into the like, conversation. It's really interesting because we just started a class again for the, for this year for new beekeepers and it's been pretty pretty exciting L- like learning the stuff all over again hmm. um, what's what's really sad right thing happening right now is um, um this one company that owns 100,000 
beehives lost half of their crop, half of their <laughs> to varroa destructor, which is the biggest problem in the honeybee community. The varroa destructor is a is a small mite that basically eats up uh, eats up the the larva and the pupa state of bees, and basically it's it's bad bad problem right now we're facing. Okay. One thing I wanted to ask a question since you've done podcasting for so many years, um, what advice would you have for someone that's starting a brand new podcast? <laughs> um, I mean, I, to be to, uh, to be a hundred percent candid, my first piece of advice would be don't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think and, and when I say don't, I don't necessarily mean don't, but I mean, you really have to think of what is that, that strong differentiating fact, right? Like I, I, what I like about your show is you're thinking about, you know, like hacks and hobbies. A lot of your questions were hobby oriented. We have this sort of more wandering conversation. Yeah. Um, but the truth is like, there are a, a unending amount of fitness podcasts or business podcasts or, or wannabe comedian podcasts, right? Um, the barrier to entry is so low that you have all of these people running into it and very few of them are sort of differentiating, right? And I mean, I, I ran a show for eight years. It was, a, it was an interview-based show. It was a uh, strictly sort of business and social science um, guests and other people were doing a way better job than me. And so I gave up. And I pivoted to something else where I could actually sort of differentiate. Now, that doesn't mean everybody should give up. Like if you're, if you're passionate about it, audio is an amazing medium. It's the things that it can do for your own sort of network. But everyone, I think, has to think about what is that differentiating factor? Because if, if you get through, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like in business shows, mm -hmm. uh, you have a new author launches their book and suddenly everyone's interviewing them in the same week, yeah. right? And you, you figure out pretty quickly that, oh, I don't have to listen to all of these episodes. I only, like, if I listen to like Jordan Harbinger and Tim Ferriss, I can catch everything going on in the business and entrepreneurship space, right? And I don't need everybody else's show. But it's the people that sort of differentiate. One of my favorite podcasters is a guy named Srini Rao, who runs The Unmistakable Creative. Mm -hmm. And he runs a variety of different guests and has a very unique um, sound and a very unique topic that draws a community that is much more loyal. So that would be my, my big thing is just think different. How can you sort of differentiate the idea that you're going to take over kind of Mark Marin and have millions of downloads, et cetera, that ship has sailed unless you're already famous because the barrier to entry is so high. But the, the thing you can do is find that Kevin Kelly, 1000 true fans. That is um, a differentiated group of people who will stay loyal to you because of the topic and the community. And your show is really just sort of the anthem of the community. That is, is what works out best. My other big recommendation is to make sure that you don't use uh, music that you don't have a license for because things can go south really, really fast on that. But that, you know, that's, that's not speaking from experience or anything. Mm -hmm. That's really good point. Um, don't start a podcast if you don't have a differentiating factor. And if you're, if you already have a community that you're talking with, like for example, a friend of mine or a friend that I made through the anchor community, uh, Mark Graham, um, he started a pop side. He's, he's, he brought in a psychologist and they're talking about uh, movies and they're talking about psychology and they're talking about mental health issues that people are having. So it's, he's got a really nice niche carved out over there. So I think that was, yeah, I love it. Mm -hmm. 
And then um, there's like there there recently had a report out that there were two hundred thousand new podcasts created just last year, mm. six hundred thousand total that are in the world right now. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm I'm willing to bet that most of those ran for like six episodes and that was it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it it all comes down to okay, how long are you willing to stick to? your content and you're not doing it for somebody else you're doing it for yourself for your own knowledge for you know to expand your own mind well i think there's i mean i think there's three reasons that are that are valid i hinted at one around that community um you hinted at the other one and then the, the third is like i was talking about at the top of the show sometimes it's about just um using it as a medium to to co-collaborate every episode with people and grow your your network yeah. or your sphere of influence through that like i think a, a lot of opportunity exists in creating podcasts for specific industries or regions mm-hmm. that there isn't something there already and you because you're creating this audio form and almost everybody in america at this point has, has heard of mm-hmm. podcast gets the idea of an audio show or an internet radio show if you want to go super old school mm-hmm. they get it enough to to say yes to the request to interview and it can become a really powerful way to sort of move a little bit deeper into that network that you're trying to influence. That's a really, really great um, way to do it as well. But I mean, doing it because you're going to make a million dollars in ad revenue, that's probably not going to happen anymore. And really that shouldn't have been your motivation to begin with. Exactly. That's, that is a, you're already losing because of yeah. I'm just spending in recording and publishing and editing, you know, it's, you, it's that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, unless you're already super famous and everyone's just going to run to you. But, you know, if you are, you're, you're probably not listening to the show. But if you are, do you want to come on the show? I'm sure that you would love to have those guests. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, what's, um, and that's, that's a really good point that you mentioned, that if you're not already famous, you're not going to be making that money. And a uh, really good friend of mine, she's a LinkedIn video strategist and... Um, She's got over 3 million views on some videos and some posts. So she became a popular LinkedIn speaker. And recently she launched a show, The Judy Fox Show. And she's like, you know, I, my first few, you know, first few episodes are already booked because I have local sponsors that want to sponsor my episodes, my podcast. I was like, dude. Mm. That's awesome. You've you've got a pre-sponsor already, and you're bringing in you know guests and talking to these guests related to what that sponsor is you know sponsoring about. So she's got a good brand set up. So I was like, okay, that's pretty interesting. But yeah, that's that's really cool. The other thing that yeah. I keep hearing, like keep seeing from people, because I'm I'm frequently visiting the Anchor community uh, around the Anchor app is, oh, I'm not getting enough downloads. I'm not getting enough views on my podcast episode. And what should I do for marketing? Well, how many episodes do you, do you have? Oh, I just have two episodes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think people have an unrealistic expectation of downloads too. Like your, your two episodes point dead on. But the other thing is like, so one of, my, one of my friends is a guy named Tom Webster. He runs a lot of the research for a company called Edison Research. They do this annual report called the Infinite Dial that is literally, it's an annual research report about the world of audio. Right, which means audiobooks, podcasts, uh, radio, satellite radio, and then standard radio. And so he has a lot of podcasts and uh, research. And one of the things he told me is like the average show 
is doing 1500 downloads per episode, right? Yeah. Which is depending on where you are is either a huge number or a small, but you got to remember that is super skewed, right? Because Mark Marin is doing 3 million of that, right? So he's skewing it, it over. But the other thing is I think we don't think about like, even if you're, if you're approaching that number, you're approaching the 50th percentile, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was Jordan Harbinger, uh, another podcasting buddy of mine, who put that in perspective. 1,500 is like, you know, it's a college basketball stadium. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the average attendance for stuff that, I mean, no one, would, no one would be too upset about. If you could put, stand up in like Central Park and gather 1,500 people to you, you would feel pretty significant. Pretty. But... You know, in in a podcast, people will like kick themselves or oh, I only have I only have five hundred regular listeners. Could you assemble a people of five hundred, like a group of five hundred people to come listen to you give a speech on your own? Probably not. But they are there. They're just doing it asynchronously, so it doesn't feel as impactful. But the impact is definitely there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, fantastic. All right, so another question on what are some of the marketing techniques that you can think of? I mean. You did podcasting in the past. What, did you do any implement any marketing techniques in the podcasting? Yeah. I mean, I, I've played around. I've wasted a lot of money between books, podcasts, videos, et cetera. I've wasted a lot of money on Facebook ads and Google ads and that kind of stuff. Um, I think that the two biggest things that work really well for growing your, your listener base are making it ridiculous ridiculously easy to share. And so that's little things like audiographs if you want to play with that. Although that's a that's an example of a tool, not necessarily a strategy. When I was doing it, those things didn't exist. So it was really just a matter of making sure share buttons were front and center and, and quotes that were impactful from it were right there that people could could tweet or post out. And then the other thing is, so making it really easy for the, those 500 people, that's probably not the extent of your tribe. You just may not have found it yet. So let them share it. Let your show be sort of the anthem of that community that you're trying to make inroads into. And the other thing that I would tell people is try and be a guest on as many shows that have a similar impact as, as you. Because again, it's sort of like we, nowadays you're not trying to get a mass audience. You're trying to identify who's the community that we're trying to serve by creating this content. And there are probably probably two or three other people that have targeted that community. And if that community is 10,000 people strong, but each of you only have about a thousand or 2000 of that community, there's, there is some overlap, but it's also going to be very different people who may not know you exist. Like I define marketing fundamentally. And I, I stole this from my friend, Tim Grawl as moving people from not knowing you exist to knowing you exist. Mm. That's it. Right? We think about it as this fancy tactic thing and, and everything from click funnels to Super Bowl ads and we lump all this stuff that we can't necessarily do into it. But for, for a personal brand, which is what a lot of podcasts are also organized around, the, you just have to think of it as what's the best way to move people from not knowing I exist to knowing I exist. And then the ones that now that they know you exist and your content resonates with them, they'll stay and they'll share. And so the best way to do that is, is like I said, make it easy for them to share and then also try and collaborate with the people who are also in that community. It's, it's no small wonder if you look at a podcast is similar to this. If you look at like the YouTuber community, yeah. they're always doing collaborations. They've even done that insufferable thing where they call it a collab just to make it 
fresh and weird teen colloquialism it drives me nuts. But like, that's what they, they, they know that by sharing each other's, each other with each other's audience, they'll help uh, more people know, okay, this person exists. And I didn't realize I liked their content until I saw them on this other thing. Yeah. So doing those collaborations is huge too. The cool thing for you is like, you're already figuring out to be deeply embedded into that anchor community of creators. So those things yeah. are probably happening as a natural outgrowth of that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is definitely happening. Cool. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about your book and how did that come up? And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, it kind of happened or were you thinking about the networking factor around the book or uh, when you decided to write the book or was it a, a culmination of all the things happening around the podcast? Yeah. So, I mean, really, uh, some of it was just learn, learning that there were names for certain things that I was doing, right? So, I mean, fundamentally, it's my third book. My first two books have all utilized some research from the world of network science, the mathematicians and sociologists and psychologists that study how humans connect. And maybe through writing the second book, I kind of started looking at the landscape and realizing that, that fundamentally there were two types of books mm. about networking and and network connections and that sort of thing. There were the so-called sort of advice books. So these are your how to win friends and influence people and never eat alone. And, and they're great, but they are one guy, usually always a guy, sometimes a girl, one person's ideas about how they built up a community around them right? They're almost sort of testimonials for here's how I did it and you should do it too. And then there were a couple of books that I call the isn't it fascinating category. And so these were books by the actual network scientists, Duncan Watts, Nicholas Christakis, and James Fowler, mm-hmm. Albert Laszlo Barbassi. All of these people are brilliant, but their attempts to write a book that would reach the general populace were, hey, isn't this fascinating what we know about how humans interact? Mm-hmm. And so the grand idea for me was maybe there's an opportunity to try and and be the middle point or the linchpin between these two communities. Explaining this science isn't this fascinating, but in a way that is as practical and applicable as the so-called advice books. And you know what I stumbled into after it is that fundamentally I, people don't, I think, need networking advice because that, I mean, almost everybody if you've ever been to a networking event, for example, or that unstructured cocktail hour that's at the end of a conference day, or that those sort of things. Yeah you try and implement some of this advice and you feel weird and sleazy and awkward. I mean, networking makes most people feel dirty. And I think the reason for that is that they're trying to apply this person's advice when that person's life is very different from your life. So the better approach is to learn what is universally true about networks. What is the network that I'm a part of and where am I on in it? Am I on the fringes or am I sort of a central node? Do I need to work to get deeper into the community or is my way to create value to connect lots of different people? All of that varies by sort of where you are in your unique situation. Mm-hmm. So the best thing to do is understand, okay, what's universally true about networks and then, and then where am I? Am I that, that connector, that, that what we call a broker between two structural holes or am I this person that's way out on the fringes that's actually relatively disconnected and then do I want to be that or not and if not how do I change that's really interesting because because I've I've been I've been to multiple LinkedIn local events I've been to other networking events and I always felt like I was who was like the most disconnected with everybody and I had sure there were some events that I, you know, I would go to a networking event, okay, this is for movie making or this is for, you know, photography. And then since the niche was very 
tied into my passions, I knew what to talk about. But then these open-ended networking events is where I'm like totally lost. What do I talk about to people? <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, I do this and this and this. Like, maybe they're not interested in what I do. So what, what I had been doing is I've been helping the host, you know, record video or, you know, do different things and, you know, become like an expert in one specific, very specific area that I'm passionate about. And then people see me doing video and doing this thing like, oh, you're the video guy where you hire to do this and, you know, take our photo or, so this is really interesting. Like I'm still trying to figure out, okay, what do I, like, what is my brand? What is I, what do I talk about? Yeah. So you, you describe a couple different things there that, that I want to hit on. The, the first is that we know from, from research, including studies where researchers literally put together a networking event and then used RFID tags inside the name badge to track who talks to whom. We know that people don't actually mix at mixers, right? We know that people spend the majority of their time at these unstructured events mm-hmm. talking to people that they already know which is fine unless your goal is to meet lots of new people because we know that people don't do that. So the number one way to sort of, I think, leverage a lot of these unstructured events is to make them about reconnecting with what in the research we would call a weak or a dormant tie. Someone you know, but you don't know that well. Because in the, in the unstructured context, like you're not going to strike up too many conversations with brand new people because people tend to linger and have longer conversations with people they already know. So make it for a lot of people, make it your goal to just see who else is coming and make this my plan to reconnect with that person I haven't talked to in six months. Right. If you do that, then you walk out of there with a successful use of the event. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing, there's a, a series of studies by a gentleman named Brian Uzi that birthed into what he calls the shared activities principle, which is that doing something alongside someone else is usually a better way to make a connection with somebody new than just sitting face to face and having a conversation. So he describes it as everything from, you know, hobbies and working for charity and what have you. But, but what you're describing being the the videographer, the photographer is a, is a form of a shared activity because you're probably not doing it alone. You're, you're, there's a couple of people who are working the event and now by the very nature of your responsibility, you have those new people, but then the take our picture thing, right? Those people are being a part of the record, creating the record of, of that event. And so you end up meeting more of those new people anyway. Again, either strategy is fine. You want to go into a networking event to meet lots of new people. Great. But have a strategy to be sharing an activity with them. Often that can be being one of the volunteers, et cetera. But that could also be like being the person that's going to plan, um, whatever type, I don't want to use the term icebreaker, but whatever type of opening event or being on the committee that figures out who the speaker is for LinkedIn local. Um, Either that or know that everyone in the room, yourself included, is probably going to spend more time talking to people they already know and then make a plan that leverages that phenomenon and make a plan to figure out who's coming ahead of time and make sure that I have that conversation with that person. Either of those strategies are fine, but you know, both are more in line with the research and can have you feeling a whole lot less sleazy and weirdo yeah. if you play to those instead of do what so many of us try to do, which is go in and hope that we're going to meet five new people and then kick ourselves because we only met one and we had a super awkward conversation with them. No, those are excellent points. Thank you so much. You know, because, uh, wow, blown my mind. Because I see those people that, that always hang out together, always, you know, every, every meeting you'll see the same people talking to each other. And then they're like, oh, let me go mingle. And then they'll come back. 
go hang out with the same people. It's really cool. All right. 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 And, and some, I mean, some of it is just the, our natural inclination to, to want to be in our comfort zone and talk to people. But the other thing is that if you know that person, you have, you have more to talk about, right? And so you, you end up lingering longer and then the event's over and you didn't realize you didn't spend enough time mingling. Yeah. Um, and, a, and, a, and a lot of the networking advice books that I was talking about earlier are strategies to try and figure out how to break out of that and, and mingle. And my approach is like, hmm, if that's your comfort zone, like that's fine. Just use the event for that and use other things. Use shared activities as your way to make those new connections. New connections. No, that's, that's really cool. Awesome. Love it. All right. So at this point, we have some questions for you. Okay. What is one hobby that you wish you got into? So, and I think you sent me this ahead of time and I actually have a weird answer to this. It's not that I wish I got into, I wish I didn't make a decision a while back and I was still playing golf and actually golf is part of a number of other hobbies like mountain biking and what have you. And and here's what I mean by that. About 13 years ago, I started training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a beautiful and addictive martial art um, that's sort of a blend of, of Judo and wrestling and a couple other things. It's, it's what you see if you watch a, an MMA fight like UFC or Bellator. As soon as it goes to the ground, they're doing Jiu-Jitsu, right? And so I've been doing that for 13 years. And about four uh, years into it, I realized that any time doing a different hobby is time not training in this sport. And so I gave them all up. I gave away my mountain bike. I sold my golf clubs. Like I gave up every hobby other than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have those moments where I go, ah, you know, I, you know, I wish I still did. I wish I wasn't a total embarrassment the one time every two years mm-hmm. that I went out on the golf course with people. But I, I also try and remind myself that like you only have 168 hours a week. Exactly. Any time spent doing multiple hobbies is time not doing that one that I'm really passionate about, which for me is the really weird and esoteric sport of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I think um, Tim Ferriss picked up something like that. Yeah, so Tim, so Tim dabbles in in jujitsu a little bit. We've actually, I've never met Tim, but we have we have trained and rolled with some of the same people because I mean the beautiful thing about it is it's a community, just like we were talking about earlier with with different community networks. You can travel to just about any city on the planet, um, but certainly in North America, and you can find a place where at least in the evenings, people get together and train. And usually you can find a a friend or a friend of a friend that you already know that can sort of loop you into that community, get you introduced and and drop by. And so as I travel to speak, I often do it. Tim sort of does the same thing. Um, I am blessed with far less bodily injuries than Tim, probably because I do way less of the biohacking that Tim does. So I've been able to do it a little bit more consistently. Tim sort of on and on again, off again. But yeah, it's, I mean, he, he figured it out too. It's this amazing community network to be a part of and the sport itself is hugely addicting nice all right so next question what is your favorite movie or tv show and if none how about a book so uh, i have a couple different books that i recommend to people on the on the fiction side i'm a huge fan of screw tape letters and i think everybody should read it about every five to ten years even you know it's a, it's written by c.s lewis who is a christian but whatever your faith tradition or no faith tradition it's a great book because it's about how humans are uh it's about our, our moral vices and our, our temptation to to be amoral that we all fight on a regular basis and that's something that i think everybody can, can relate to written from the perspective of a demon that's trying to get this person to, to be immoral mm-hmm. um and so i think it even if you if you're not in any sort of faith tradition you can still sort of resonate with the idea that here's this weird fictional book but it actually 
resonates with all of our little temptations to not um, be a good be a good neighbor, be a good citizen, etc. Um, on the that's on the fiction side. On the nonfiction side, I recommend a lot of people read a book by Roger Martin called The Opposable Mind, which is all about how do you hold two different mental models in your head at the same time, and instead of the the either or, how do you choose a, a strategy that integrates both of them? It's sort of like Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talked about the instead of either or, how can you just say yes? Um, except he didn't actually give any instruction on how to do that. Roger's done a lot of deep thinking and interviewed a lot of people who are really good at doing that. And so the opposable mind is sort of the how of how to do that. It's a fantastic, it's, it's an older, I mean, an older book. It's like 15, 20 years old, sure. but it's a great read and it's pretty short. Nice. I will check it out. A couple more questions. What is your favorite superhero? Batman by far or Iron Man. If you are more Marvel, one of the things I actually struggle with is I grew up a DC fan and the movies are just not as good as what Marvel has been building in their sort of cinematic universe. So I struggle with this until I had a realization about two years ago that Batman and Iron Man are literally the same character. And so it's okay if I like Marvel too, I just have to like Iron Man. What I, what I love about them is they're not super. They weren't bit by a radioactive something or other. They're not aliens who, you know, came undocumented into our country to go be our superhero. That's yeah. a Superman joke. <laughs> um, they're, they're just regular people who, even with a ton of issues, yeah. realize that their advantages and, and their privileges in life came with responsibility to do something. I mean, it's funny to me that like we associate with great power comes great responsibility line to Spider-Man because like, Batman and Iron Man are a way better example of with power comes responsibility. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, last question. If you were a board game, what would it be? <laughs> Can I just use life and then just peace out because it's self-explanatory? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I am? I, I would probably be like uh, Settlers of Catan, which oh is a really fascinating game about knowing when to collaborate and when to compete. And I think that's a lot of life. The answer is more often collaboration than, than not. But like we look at like risk or access and allies and those sort of things and they're hundred percent competitive. Mm-hmm. Whereas with settlers, like you can't progress to a certain level unless you choose to trade and interact and collaborate with people. And then yeah, eventually you're gonna have to compete with them. But first it's about how can we all sort of make our community better. And and I think that's a pretty good life lesson. Yeah. And I mean it also happens to be one that resonates with a book like Friend of a Friend. So yeah, I'll go with that one for now. Awesome. Yeah, I, I am a I am a Settlers of Catan fan as well, and I've got all these add-ons and oh. Well, I'll t- so I would tell you this: even cooler than add-ons, we got this the other day. I'm going to sound super nerdy. We found it on Etsy, but you can find other places where people will build rebuild the game board, but out of like wood like solid wood, good pieces. Cause my biggest complaint about settlers is the little cardboard thing. They always bend and warp and you can't like, you end up having to like lay paperweights down in the corners to keep the thing settled. But we found this one that's wood and the pieces interlock and it lays flat and it works way better. So yes to the expansion packs and what have you, but you should totally get a custom board made too. Cause it's going to be so much better. Awesome. See, there's, there's a little bit of geekiness out, out in there with the hobbiness. <laughs> so David, where can uh, my audience find you? 
Uh, I mean, so the best place is probably in the show notes for this episode because you're his audience. You're, you're part of this rare breed of people called the end of the podcast club that actually listen all the way to the end. Uh, and, you know, I could tell you to go to davidberkus.com, but you might, Berkus is a weird name and blah, 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 blah. So the show notes to this episode, he's going to put all the links and all that kind of stuff there. So, you know, just go there and then you'll find me. Perfect. Thank you so much, David. This was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate all of the knowledge that you've shared. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. Have a good day. You too. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode on Hacks and Hobbies. We absolutely appreciate your contribution. You can find additional notes on hacksandhobbies.com. Please share the podcast with your friends and tell them what you learned about our guest today.